0: Welcome to the Blockbusters and Birdwalks podcast. I am the curator, Garrett Chaffin-Kirai. As written about and taught in the United States, the history of post-World War II movies often follows this pattern. Italian neorealism and responses to neorealism, the impact of TV, Hollywood Spectacle, The French New Wave and Responses to the New Wave, Cold War Movies, Social Realism, Movies from Sweden, Japan, and China, Hollywood's Second Golden Age, New German Cinema, Third World Cinema, Hong Kong, Bollywood, Australia, and New Zealand, The Rise of the Blockbuster, The Impact of Home Video, Corporate Synergy versus Independent Production, CGI, International Co-Production, The Impact of the Internet, and Streaming. We might add to this movie-centric list other sociocultural experiences, including civil rights agitation, anti-colonial independence movements, gender and sexuality-based advocacy, various wars, several epidemics, and more than a handful of economic crises. Then, we might sprinkle in some famous and influential people, both inside and outside the arts, like Kennedy, Gandhi, Kubrick, Warhol, Lucas, Thatcher, Reagan, Beyonce. Finally, We drill into specific movie titles and themes we're interested in exploring. In this idiosyncratic history of post World War II movies, we continue with The Castle of Cagliostro and Animation. Disney's production company, dating back to the 1920s, established some cutting-edge tools for making animated entertainment that proved not just family-friendly, but globally exportable. To develop a more fertile way to examine what this means, let's reconsider that realism can be defined as a correspondence between the lived world and creative expression. This contrasts with the term formalism, as I define it, an artificial representation as the point of creative expression. Clearly, animation belongs to the formalist school of creative expression. By balancing speed, quality, and cost, any animation firm that does this job well right out of the gates has an advantage to quickly establish an infrastructure of people and tools. That's where the model of Walt Disney comes in. He had the ability to make an animated feature film relatively fast, of relatively high quality, and a relatively low cost considering the resource-intensive process of making an animated movie. How was this possible? Walt Disney and his animators capitalized on the teens' development of cell animation, whereby panels of art that do not change from frame to frame are allowed to stay stable and still. And animators then only work on the parts of an individual frame that change. A background of a forest can remain completely static, but a bird taking flight through that forest might be the moving element. So, using cellular animation, the background of the forest is reprinted over and over again as you only animate the individual moving object in this example, the bird that's flying through the forest. I point this out simply to trace the fact that Walt Disney and the company that bears his name were able to capitalize on this invention by other animators. Thus, we have the Disney animation boom beginning with Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs that carries through the 1940s into the 50s with such high-water marks as Peter Pan and Cinderella, which carries on into the 60s, but then gradually peters out as other companies begin to compete directly with Disney having also marked out a space of balancing speed, quality, and cost with their own corporate identity and their own stories they wished to tell. Let's turn our eyes to Hayao Miyazaki, whose debut feature film is called The Castle of Cagliostro. This was released in 1979 and capitalized on a manga series that had been published from 1967 through 1969 called Lupin III. This is the story of a master thief who has capers, various collaborators, various ongoing antagonists, but there is a tone to the whole affair which is very slight and very enjoyable. And therein is the charm and also the distinction from the tradition defined by the likes of Disney. By focusing on a criminal, we shift away from what is typically allowed. Lupin and his friend Jigen flee a casino that they've frisked of a big cash payout only to discover that what they have stolen is in fact high-quality counterfeit bills. Lupin suspects that the source of these counterfeit bills is the Grand Duchy of Cagliostro, a sovereign nation somewhere in the middle of Europe, and he engineers to go to this location, find the works producing these counterfeit bills, and either steal a whole bunch for himself or destroy the whole bundle out of frustration for the fact that he's being pursued for being a thief of counterfeit bills. Once he arrives on scene, he comes across a young woman trying to escape a group of men. He helps her nearly escape, only to watch her be kidnapped and returned to the castle of Cogliostro, sitting at the very center of this sovereign nation, surrounded by a moat with high spires. He decides that he will break his way into this castle, discover the counterfeit works, blow up the whole system, and hopefully woo this young woman, Lady Clarice. The problem is she is engaged to Count Lazar de Cagliostro. His only interest in Clarice is combining two different parts of the historical Cagliostro family into one, whereby he presumes to be the deep state beneath all nations of the world. And he'll have absolute control over everyone because he creates global currency from his basement. And along the way, we realize that a lady-in-waiting helping Clarice, a woman called Fujiko, is in fact a double agent. In the conclusion of the movie, it is Fujiko who escapes with all of the plates for the counterfeit bills scot-free, while Lupin and his best friend Yigen escape for their next adventure. Perhaps most notable to these eyes is that the setting of this piece is Europe. The particular allusions made are to Greco-Roman art and society set in a medieval castle. And most of the characters are animated to resemble Westerners, not East Asians, like the Japanese folks who were animating this work. There's loads of gunplay. There are bomb blasts. There are attempted murders. There is much cigarette smoking. Count Lazar de Cagliostro's minions are a group of foot soldiers wearing odd armored suits who look a lot like crabs moving side to side there's also a general impression of sacrilegious treatment of religious iconography. In one of the penultimate sequences of the movie, where Count Lazar intends to marry Lady Clarice against her will, there is a sexually assaultive vibe to the whole sequence. It all unspools in a church just one more location for Prattfalls, Falls gag stunts and violence to occur. There is also a serial recognition that surveillance by the individual of Count Lazar trying to maintain his castle is used to look at people. And at certain points in the movie, that sense of examination and surveillance is connected quite directly with television television news in particular, as we go through this sham wedding and look at a TV news crew that has been dispatched to bring the good news of what's happening in this rich, sovereign nation where, in attendance, are global leaders to honor Count Lazar. Finally, there's no sense of closure at all. We realize that Lupin has solved the mystery of why it is that Cagliostro is so wealthy as a country, but also we realize that all of the principal performers we have enjoyed through the length of this movie's 100 minutes are left to the next adventure. And here is an aside. I got to the castle of Cagliostro as a completist, trying to bring off the shelf all of Miyazaki's movies and ensure that I had seen them all so I could say with authority, This is my favorite Miyazaki. I must confess that I was not looking forward to watching this original movie of his because I assumed it was going to be juvenile. The techniques were going to be the least skilled of any of his works, but I was wrong. I very much enjoy The Castle of Cagliostro. A few of the reasons why also suggest how Miyazaki's feature alternative to the Disney machine is made possible. As you are aware, One of the chief things animation can do that realism cannot provide is to approximate a state of being that the real will never provide us. An example. There is a scene in the movie when a character grows sick, and so that character's face turns green. That little sleight of hand is perfectly acceptable in animation, but would beggar the imagination in a realist live-action movie. There is an impossibility of stunt work in this as well. Lupin and his various assailants and his various helpers do things that an actual person could never hope to survive. For example... There is a scene when Lupin is on a very steep rooftop gable and runs down it like on a ski slope and launches himself into midair much farther than any one person could jump. And this opportunity allows him to hang in the air momentarily, much like we watch Wily e. Coyote chasing the Roadrunner, which brings to mind the idea of intertextuality. This movie, The Castle of Cagliostro, is pointing outside of itself on a couple of occasions to other media folks in the late 1970s may recognize. I've already suggested that there is an interlay of TV news journalism being applied to this piece. While that's true, there are some other more direct instances in which we see intertext show up, and one of them is the fact that Sleeping Beauty's mythology is laid right at the foot of this thing. Lupin is, after all, attempting to break out of her jail atop a spire in this castle, the Lady Clarisse, for whom he has romantic feelings and hopes that she may reciprocate this romantic feeling with him. We also see references to what I draw to be Scooby-Doo, the TV show, which has a groovy soundtrack, bright colors, and a sense of throwback fashion even for the late 1970s. Then. The sort of er ur-text that sits beneath the castle of Cagliostro is, in my mind, the James Bond franchise of movies and books. Not only is Lupin an expert thief, he's also a very good paramilitary soldier. Another outstanding element of this movie is its timelessness. When is this movie set? We have references to the United Nations which is founded in the late 1940s. So the movie must take place after that foundational event. We see horse-drawn wagons in the countryside of Cagliostro up and against cars that would have been new in the 30s, but we don't see late model material from the 50s onward. We spend some time thinking about the role of Interpol. We look at TV cameras and television sets, which we know would be post-middle 1950s, but really closer to the 1970s. The point, if you roll all of together is recognizing that by the end of the 1970s there were beginning to be viable alternatives to the formulaic cell animation that had been popularized and pioneered by the likes of the disney corporation and his various animators working for him we also notice that this is a moment in which the computer is beginning to be used to map certain aspects of set design and certain aspects of character design so as we move into the 1980s there will be an increasing reliance not on traditional illustrators and draftspeople creating the visual artifact photographed one frame at a time, 16 frames a second, up to 24 frames a second, and we'll shift into a different kind of production process for animation. Yet at this moment we're still looking at hand-drawn art we're looking at selected imagery and the whole of it centers on this super criminal called Lupin, who is nonetheless very charming and wins the day. Thank you for listening to the Blockbusters and Birdwalks podcast. My name is Garrett Chaffin-Kirai. Boop boopity doo!